Once again, good morning. It brings me joy to see all of you. I am thankful that all of you are here. And we as a church family are very thankful if you're visiting with us. If you're from out of town, in town, uh, it thrills us uh, that you've uh, chosen to be with us this morning. And uh, uh, it can get better. You can come back and join us again. And we would love to have you. Uh, Before I launch... Uh, this morning, I, I'd like to uh, just pause and just say just a few brief things uh, about uh, last Sunday evening. Uh, basically, to tell you uh, that it meant an awful lot uh, to Mary and to myself and, uh, of course, to my children, too. Um, not that we uh, saying that we deserved it, but in the rush of time, uh, to pause and uh, to be recognized that way uh, for something, I guess, is pretty rare. Um, it was very special uh, to, to all of us. And uh, for those of you who uh, made it happen and for those of you who participated, uh, uh, thank you. Of course, you gave us a, a clock, and uh, uh, it chimes uh, uh, very loudly uh, on each hour. And uh, so I'm reminded... 24 times a day, uh, what you mean to me. And uh, so thank you. I hope you got an outline as you came in. If it helps you to fill it out as we go through, I'll try to cue you in. You'll see words underlined up there. That usually means it's on your outline. And I hope I didn't make too many mistakes. The story is told about a farmer who was uh, on his wagon, uh, being pulled by his mule, and uh, with his dog sitting next to him. And as he was uh, moving down a back road next to one of his fields, uh, some city slicker came speeding by and hit his rig and kept going. The farmer ended up being pinned underneath his wagon. His dog was laying on the ground not too far from him. And the mule ended up in a ditch across the road. And about that time, a short time after, a car pulled up and the farmer began to think, thank God someone's finally here to help me. And then he kind of noticed, looking out from underneath the wagon, that it was the sheriff's car, and that made him, of course, even more relieved. Well, the sheriff got out of the car and made a quick assessment of uh, the situation, and seeing that the mule was suffering from a severely broken leg, he pulled out his revolver and, and shot it to take it out of his misery. And then he crossed over to the road and saw the dog standing there, and the dog was worse off than the, the mule, so he took his revolver and shot the dog to take him out of his misery. And then he finally walked over to the man and asked the man if he was in pain. And from underneath the wagon, he says, never been better in my life. <laughs> the point being that perspective can make all the difference. So often you can have two people who are encountering the exact same trials, the exact same moments of crisis, but the outcome for the two can end up in very different places. I think the explanation more than that is on the top of your outline is that outcome is determined by outlook. Perspective is a huge factor. Now, last time as we introduced the book of James, I noted that the basic message of James is that our faith is supposed to hit the streets. James' word to us, it's time to get real. 
And James boils it down to this. That faith is denied if it doesn't make a difference in everyday living. And that's especially true in the midst of life's struggles when our faith is working. The struggles of life, you see, are seen from a very different vantage point and perspective. But the faith that works must be true. And the faith that's true, we're going to find, must be tried. And so, in this book on everyday living, the very first thing that James wants to talk to us about is this issue. So I want you to pick up and read with me once again, starting in chapter 1, verse 2. Consider it pure joy. My brothers, when you face trials or encounter trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops Perseverance, and perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature, complete, not lacking in anything. Now, James wants us to hear some truths, and here he tells us two things that are absolutely true about trials as we kind of open the book on this. Number one on your outlines is that trials are, perhaps unfortunately, inevitable. Scott Peck, in his book, uh, well-known book, written written many years ago, The Road Less Traveled. Some of you have probably read that book. And if you did, you'll remember that he opens his book with a very simple but very profound statement. Life is difficult. And that reflects a boatload of truths. You'll notice that James opens with not if trials happen, but when they happen. Now, remembering James' original audience, these Christian Jews, who are now refugees, had been scattered everywhere, but in their scattering, they were not a sheltered people. And so if anyone tells you, hey, just become a Christian, and you'll somehow uh, uh, be insulated from problems and be able to maybe have this easy escape from all the things that are going around you, They've either misunderstood God's design for life and certainly how God has chosen to use his power to orchestrate life. Handling trials isn't an elective for followers. It is, well, a required course. Everyone has to deal with trials. I remember there's a song that we used to sing. It's been a long while since I've heard it, but we'd sing it in a college group back when I was in college. And it goes like this, so most, if not all of you, will recognize it. Tempted and tried, we're off made to wonder why it should be thus all the day long. While there are others living about us, never molested, though in the wrong. And if you're not careful, that verse could easily give you or leave you with the lingering feeling, you know, poor, pitiful, lamentable Christians. Why are we the only ones that have to deal with problems? Truth is, everyone faces problems. Now, some people have better attitudes toward their trials than others, but everyone has to face tough moments. Everyone. Believers, non-believers alike. Mary and I would often get tickled. If you're a parent, you know how this works. Especially when they were little. You know, four or five, six years of age, so if you can kind of picture. And they might have been going through some crisis in life and... And uh, maybe, you know, something at school, maybe, you know, something with the neighborhood pecking order amongst the kids. And uh, and they would kind of look up and say something like, you know, Mom, Dad, 
You just don't know what it's like in my world. And of course, that's our kind of our instinctive reaction to problems, except we as adults are just a lot more sophisticated with it. And as we kind of throw a, well, kind of an exclusive pity party, and we're the only ones invited. Poor, pitiful me, gloom, despair, agony on me, deep, dark, depression, excessive misery. Nobody knows the troubles I've seen. But before you go there, I want you to listen to Paul as he takes us someplace. As we skip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and listen. No test, no temptation, same word, has seized you except that which is common to man. I am not the first one to go through it, and I'm certainly not going to be the last. Now, as an aside, let me make this point. The word used here in the Greek, when he used the word face trials or encounter trials, it suggests by its denotation something that is unwelcome and unanticipated in our experience. It's the same word used in the, uh, the parable of the uh, Good Samaritan when it said that the guy fell into the hands of robbers. You see, he wasn't looking for trouble. He wasn't creating the trouble. Trouble found him, right? And in other words, there's no room for the idea of our seeking out trials in order to prove ourselves or for some sort of self-inflicted experience. I mean, let's just, you know, be honest. A lot of times, the troubles that we encounter is because we've kind of made a mess of life, right? But what James is talking about here is that inevitably, in every life, troubles are going to come that we do not look for, that we do not want, and that we did not create. In fact, I think if God did not place his hedge of protection around us, I think everyone in this room would be crushed by life experiences. And of course, that raises an interesting question to me. Why does God permit us to struggle at all? Why does God allow any trouble at all to get through this protective hedge and reach my life? It would seem to me that it would be an awfully attractive perk in our evangelistic efforts, to be able to say, look, you become a Christian, and your life is fixed. You have all these easy escapes to life. Which leads us to the second truth that James wants to take us to on your outlines. Trials are indispensable. And if you're like me, you don't necessarily like the sound of that one. Now, James knows that Satan can use our trials, our difficulties, tough moments to break our lives down, to destroy us, to discourage us. But James also knows that God can use those very same moments to develop us. The distinction, you see, is determined by the framework that we choose to use. And so James prefers the approach as he looks at trials as though they are servants under the direction of a wise and loving God. 
And James resonates with the psalmist in Psalm 26. Notice, examine me, God, from head to foot. Order your battery of tests. Make sure that I am fit inside and outside so I never lose sight of your love. But keep me in step with you, never missing a beat. James would say, I'm going to put my trust in a loving God. And if trials are going to come into my life, I'm going to let them be tools in the hands of God to work something good. Now, the Greek word that James uses here is kind of interesting because when you translate from the Greek to the English, it loses its translation when he says the word detesting of your faith. Now, when he used that word, his original readers, there was immediate recognition to the common man because it was a word that was used almost every day in the marketplace. Back then, everyone used pottery. Whether you were in the home, whether you were in the workplace, and the man who made the pottery would then take, of course, clay, and he would shape various different kinds of vessels with it. And then he would take that raw-shaped clay and he would place it in a fire. And the fire would harden the clay and make it, well, usable. The problem, though, at times, if the clay was defective, is that the clay would crack. Now, the problem wasn't the fire. The problem is the character of the clay, and that's very important. And when this happened, the potter would actually write on that piece of pottery... Ah, dokimos. Ah, not dokimos. Proven. But if it came out of the fire and it was whole and there were no cracks, you could put liquid in it and there would be no leakage. He would put across it dokimos. And people know they were buying a, a tried and true and approved product out there in the marketplace. And so now what James is saying here is this, if you listen. Is that the potter doesn't place the pot in the fire To make it crack. That's not his purpose. The purpose of putting it in the fire is to make it stronger, to make it more useful, to make it more valuable. Now, the fire is not an option. Because if the vessel is going to reach its potential, it's got to go through the fire. And so James modifies our perspective saying, that's what God is doing. You cannot reach your potential for God without being proven. It's like the story of the little boy who came across a a cocoon that had fallen off a tree, and he looked inside and noticed that there was a little moth in there trying to struggle and escape from the cocoon. And the boy's heart kind of reached out for this poor creature, and so he gently tore the cocoon open so that the moth could get out easily. Came back an hour or so later, only to find that very same moth lying dead right next to the cocoon. And it really bothered him, so he told his dad about it. And his dad explained, understand, son, that the struggle of the moth to get out of the cocoon was God's way to develop its muscles. It needed to struggle in order to survive. And so when you thought that you were doing a kindness to this moth by making it easier, you are really keeping it from coming, becoming stronger. Hmm. Now, James isn't saying here that trials are always good things. 
But what James is saying is that bad things can produce good things. And here's what James tells us about trials, what they can do. There are three things, and it's kind of the the essence of, of my thoughts this morning. First, trials purify your faith. And the reason for that is because trials have a way of exposing, if you will, these, these unworthy objects of our, of our trust for the illusions that they really are. And I guess if you think about it, it's somewhat instinctive for us. In fact, I'd even argue reasonable for us to place our, our faith in things that go on around us that kind of mechanize our lives. You know, the things that make life predictable and, and stable and secure. Things like our economy our political machinery, our military, our health, our jobs, our personal investments, even those whom we love most. It seems to me it's okay to have life where you can count on some things. But inevitably, events come along and sweep away these security blankets, and those moments kind of jolt us away, don't they? And we come to realize just how vulnerable and how inclined we are to place our faith in things that really aren't trustworthy. And so what we need to learn, and it is a difficult lesson, is to place our faith in something that trials cannot rob from us. Someone said that Christians are like tea bags. You need to place them in hot water in order to really find out what's on the inside of them. And that's what James says in verse 3 when he says, You know that under pressure your faith life is exposed and forced out into the open and shows its true colors. We all know that tempered metal is much more valuable than the raw material, and the same thing is true for tempered faith. On your outlines, faith has got to be tried to be true. And that's a good thing. Because we burn away those things that we put our faith in that we should not have. And we learn once again to, well, we cast our lot with God. Because he is the only one who, after all is said and done, will not fail us. Hmm. Number two. Trials fortify our patience. Verse 3 in the Living Bible says this, when the way is rough, your patience has a chance to grow. Now, I think if I were to, you know, kind of pull this congregation right now and had a big chalkboard and ask you to list all the things that God, you know, the virtues that God wants to put into our lives. You know, let's just list all these characteristics that we could come up with a very lengthy and accurate list. But probably most of us would not commit to saying that the linchpin virtue is patience. But I think I can make a good case for that. That until we develop patience, it will severely handicap our ability to develop all of these characteristics, including love, to the degree that God wants to in our life. You just look through the scriptures to see how often God places a priority and you see these different words kind of translated out of the Greek. Patience, endurance, perseverance, steadfastness, long-suffering. So let me ask you, what is patience? 
typically, I think we look at patience as kind of what? A, a passive resignation. There's nothing I can do about this, so I'll just acquiesce and go along for the ride, and that's how that's translated, is it kind of uh, uh, sends me on the pathway of bitterness and anger, doesn't it? And I justify myself there. But if we capture the force of this word, we'll discover that patience is a great deal more dynamic than that. On your outlines, patience is the courageous refusal not to quit on God. Patience is when life throws you for a loop and you don't shake your fist at heaven, but you hang in there with God. Again, going back to 1 Corinthians 10, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted or tested beyond what you can bear, but when you are tested, he will also provide a way out. And we stop there and we think, there it is. There's my easy escape. There's the design of God. But notice where this takes us. So that you can stand under it. Hmm. God's way out, you see, is not simply to escape these moments but for us to actually stand under these things without quitting, without dodging, without becoming bitter and resentful. Now, patience is a fruit of the Spirit. We know that. But that does not mean that simply because we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us that that this fruit kind of simultaneously appears. What it does mean is that we now have the resource of the Holy Spirit to lean on. You know, God is not going to change our character without our consent, right? And we remember what our natural instinct is. That is to rely on our own strength. As Paul puts it, to live by the flesh. That is, we forget to consider God in the equation when things get tough. And so God allows these trials to enter my life. Why? Well, to teach me to lean on him. What does C.S. Lewis say uh, in his book, uh, I think it's The Problem of Pain, God whispers to us in our joy, and he shouts to us in our pain. So yes, patience is part of the fruit of the Spirit, but it often takes trials in my life to give me the kind of passion to turn those struggles over to God, and because God is able, that's where hope begins to blossom, you see. So it's a good thing. And finally today, number three, trials sanctify your character. Again, there is no New Testament writer that is more focused on this idea of growing up and being mature and being complete than James. And being mature in Jesus means more than simply growing old, right? Because it's very possible to grow old and never grow up. Spiritually. I mean, we'll all get some sort of acclimation socially and, you know, with our relationships and perhaps educationally and things of that nature. But spiritually, to be tuned in is a design that we've got to deliberately choose. And so, yes, patience is part of the spirit. And it calls for something more than simply growing old. James tells us that our willingness, you see, to stay under the trial is absolutely indispensable to this process. The point is God knows what he's doing. 
And we should know what God's up to. After all, he didn't keep it a secret from us. He's told us. So what is God's ultimate purpose for my life? I understand the quick answer to that is, well, to get us to heaven, yes, save our souls, yes, yes, that's true. But in this framework, this testing period that we're under, what is he doing? Well, I'd like to take you to probably what is the most quotable text, the place we tend to go if you're a believer when we're enduring hard times. Probably not a person in this room who's a believer or been a believer for a while hadn't quoted this to themselves sometime along the line. It's found in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And that's where we stop. But don't stop there, because if you stop there, it sounds to me like an empty promise, because that's not my experience. Not that. Everything just rings great after bad moments. Let Paul usher you on to the next verse where it all comes into focus when he says, For those God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. You see, the promise here is this, that if you do not quit on God, if you will lean on the Holy Spirit, if you will stay under it, if you will rejoice in what God is trying to work into your life, when you go through the trial, this is what Paul's saying, this is what James is saying, you and I will look more like Jesus than we did before the trial hit us. And so, instead of asking, why God? Perhaps we should be asking, what God? What are you trying to work into my life right now? And I'll be honest with you, I don't really want to ask that question. But you see, there's the point of joy because we believers rejoice in the sovereignty of God. Verse 4 from the New Living Testament, when your endurance is fully developed, you will be strong in character and ready for anything. I came across this poem by an unknown author entitled, I Asked God. I asked God to take away my bad habits, and God says, no, it's not for me to take away, it's for you to give up. I asked God to make my handicapped child whole, and God said, no, her spirit is whole. The body is just temporary. I asked God to grant me patience, and God said, no, patience is a byproduct of tribulation. It isn't granted, it's learned. I asked God to give me happiness. And God said, no. I'll give you blessings. Happiness is up to you. I asked God to spare me pain. 
And God said no, because suffering draws you away from worldly cares and draws you closer to me. I asked God for all things so that I might enjoy life. And God says, no, but I'll give you life so that you can enjoy all things. I asked God to help me love others as much as he loves me. And God says, ah, finally, you got the idea. What God wants out of you and me is to love him and to love people. And James says, you can rejoice that God can use even your trials in order to make you look like the one, interestingly enough, who loves you more than anybody else. Terry Monk sent me this quote. It's from Beth Moore. She looked at this passage, and she put it this way. If we choose comfort to motivate us, we risk our calling. And when James calls us to the absurd notion of rejoicing in bad, difficult, tough Times. You see, he's not asking you and me to fake it. And he's not asking us in any way whatsoever to deny reality. But he is asking us to bring some spiritual realities to bear upon our circumstances. And it makes all the difference. And if you and I can find our way there, if we can find our way there, And it is not always easy. If it's true that God can use even the toughest moments of my life to do something good for me and for you, then it's true. Our joy is absolutely unquenchable. And that is a radical perspective. It was 1.45 in the afternoon on a Tuesday, May 15, 1998. Conductor Robert Moore, engineer Rod Lindley, were sweating it out in the cab of a locomotive, pulling the Norfolk Southern number 146, pulling 100 cars as they made their way through the countryside of Illinois. They had made this trip hundreds of times. In the distance, Moore spotted something on the right-hand side of the track. Lindley thought it was a dog, so he blew the horn, but it didn't move. And so he blew the horn again. Whatever was on the track finally raised its head. And what Moore saw was a wide-eyed little girl with her ponytail sticking up. And Moore said, it's a baby! And it was. 19-month-old Emily Marshall. And she had wandered out of her backyard. Her mother was planting some flowers, and she traveled a good little distance away from the backyard and ended up playing on the tracks. And those two experienced railroad men knew that there was no way in the world with the inertia of that train that they were going to be able to stop in time. And so while Lindley slammed on the brakes... 
More bolted out of the side door of the cab, and while clinging to the outside of the moving train, Moore sidestepped on a rail that runs the length of the locomotive, and then Moore scrambled down a set of steps to the front of the locomotive and actually clung on for his life to the snow plow, the, the, the plow guard on the front. And as the horn blared and the brakes screamed and the distance closed 40 feet, you know, 20 feet, 10 feet, Moore stretched his five-foot-nine frame, extending his right leg. And as that train swept by, he took his foot and kicked that little girl. I mean, kicked her hard. And then Moore jumped from the moving train and raced back to see the baby. And all he could see was her face and her light brown hair highlighted in blood. But she was alive. With what ended up only being superficial wounds. And I am sure that what happened to her hurt. It was very traumatic for all concerned. But now Emily has a chance to grow. In fact, by that Thursday afternoon... Emily was playing in the sunshine, proudly showing off her boo-boos for anyone who cared to look. Ultimate message today, people, God knows what he's doing. He's always about what is good for you, even when it hurts. And if we can serve you in some ways this morning... If you're going through some difficult times, maybe even privately just want to pray with someone about it. Our elders are back in the foyer. They would love for you just to approach one of them and just say, can we talk, go into a private room and pray together? If we can help you in some way as a whole family, we want you to feel free now. Come forward as we stand and as we sing.